but the craftspeople within a film unit across the board in every department is so it's staggering really mm. i'm not sure there's any other industry in that you get to see that wild variety of different kinds of people from different backgrounds with different skill sets you know so i was hooked from from very early on Ever wondered what the creative process is behind the films, TV shows and theatre productions you watch? Well, Crew Chats is a new podcast going behind the scenes and chatting to the crew that help make these productions. I'm Poonam and I usually work in the costume department. Whenever I tell people what I do, they're always fascinated. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to hear more from the wonderful people who work behind the scenes to make the films and shows we all love? Today's guest is Dan Grace, who comes from a costume family with his mum being costume designer Lindy Hemming. And so growing up, he was surrounded by the world of theatre and later film. At the age of 15, Dan got a summer job as a floor runner, which cemented his interest in being involved in the film world. The following year, at the age of 16, Dan got a job at the costume house Angels, where he was exposed to the different people involved in the costume world and also had the opportunity to work on films as a daily. He worked there for a couple of years before leaving in order to pursue further education, but decided to leave art college to go back to work. Dan then went on to work as a costumier and costume standby, which he did for eight years before supervising his first film, All or Nothing, for costume designer Jacqueline Duran. Since Dan has worked, continued working as a costume supervisor in the industry, more recently specialising in the world of Marvel and DC superhero films, working on productions such as The Dark Knight, Doctor Strange, Murder on the Orient Express, Ready Player One, and the upcoming Black Widow, to name a few. Hi, Dan. Hello. Uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast. It's all right. Pleasure. Um, likewise. So you are a costume supervisor. Now, we have had um, another costume supervisor on earlier, Veen, in one of the episodes, episode 19, guys, go and check her out, Veen, um, who spoke broadly about what being a costume supervisor involves. Now, you've had a variety of experience on different types of films, but I think I'd be right in saying that of late, and quite a lot of your experience has been in the superhero kind of world. Um, and so that's kind of what I will be talking about more specifically on today's episode. And so that is your costume supervisor. And so what does that involve for you? I'm sure Vivian has told you nearly everything you need to know. But the basic side of it is that we work in conjunction with a costume designer or for a costume mm-hmm. designer. Um, we're mostly responsible for budgeting and putting together a crew and then the uh, scheduling everything and then essentially just the running of the department. So everything that that entails whether that be the right crew in the right place at the right time, whether it's making costumes, getting the right people to make the costumes in the right place at the right time, and all of it, of course, for the right amount of money, which is always seems to be the most important part. So, yeah, in essence, we run the department. You know, we work for a costume designer and we run a department of people, which can be anything from six people to, you know, 100 people, depending on the kind of movie you're making, really. So you work on films whereby there may have be, they exist in a universe that already exists. So, for example, if it's a Marvel film, so you worked on the first Doctor Strange, for example. Now that sits in the Marvel universe. There have been however many films there were beforehand before Doctor Strange was made. And then this Doctor Strange film is being made and... Um, It needs to sit in that world and there'll be characters that come in from other worlds that then um, interact with this one. And then subsequently, you also probably can guess being a Marvel film, there probably will be a sequel or then this then character will then appear in subsequent movies in other superhero movies that go on. In that situation, how do you start? Well, with a superhero movie, you always start with the comic books. So the first thing that happens is the director or the producers or the studio will have spent years already talking about the project they're going to do, which comic book it is, which character it is. 
And they generally will have a favourite version of that character. For instance, with Doctor Strange, there was a whole iteration of Doctor Strange that was done by Steve Ditko, who's a famous 60s artist. And it usually comes back to where that director fell in love with that character. And so the initial part of it will always be that, okay, we're looking at the Steve Ditko versions of this character and like, let's look at all the comic books and whatever. So it'll always come back to that. Always in our minds though, is the first, as soon as you open the comic book, you look and you go, well, that looks ridiculous. You know, we never, would never get away with a modern movie (laughs) or would we? And so the whole design ethos then comes from, this is the inspiration, but this is the modern world that we inhabit. As you say, these are the universe of Marvel. So these are all the other characters that have already been there, you know, and there's lots of conversations about, the technology of Tony Stark. Once you've established the kind of tech in that world, that all comes. So in something like the Marvel world, it's actually, it's easier because so much of it is established and so many of the rules are in place. And also you get so much guidance from the studio because they have really definite ideas about what they want it to be. Then, of course, the you know, and the and the director, of course, as, as well, and then and then whatever the designer wants to bring to it as well. So we'll always start from always starts from the script and the comic books, and you talk and you talk and you talk, and then you know an idea is formed, and then you work around that idea and work work that idea up into something that works for comic book fans who know that character from the past, people who have never seen it before. And people who know the Marvel Universe and, you know, have a lot of opinions about where things fit in that universe. So to answer your question, it always starts with the script and the and the character or the characters. And, well, I mean, in, on any movie, you break the script down, you look at every individual character, how many different costumes they've got, what those costumes have to do. Are they involved in action? Do they have a stunt double? Are they hanging, you know, from a wire? Are they going out in the rain? Do they have to go underwater? Do you, you know, and then you have to essentially based on experience, but really based on kind of, I'm trying to think of a better way of saying just making it up as you go along. (laughs) You have to then come up with a, a, you know, a breakdown for every character and every costume and how many you'll need and how much they're going to cost to make and, and take it from there. Obviously, you've got all crowd and stunts and, and all of those things as well to costume. And then depending on, on what the movie is, how difficult that is, how involved those characters are. You know, on something like Doctor Strange, we had a whole world of the Camotage, which was a completely invented world of, you know, a sort of essentially a magical kung fu school. Uh, and, you know, you can't go out and buy those costumes. So they all had to be designed and made and built from scratch. And of course, that is different to doing 200 people walking up and down a high street in modern clothing. Yeah. So. Uh, it's always driven by the script is the short answer to your question. <laughs> and actually, you've mentioned the team, I guess, which is a massive part. I guess hiring that team is a massive part of your job, but then also um, managing, subsequently managing that team. What is the importance of a team and how do you go about hiring a team? Uh, this is a threefold question, clearly. I didn't start off like that. But um, yeah, so import managing a team, hiring a team and then the importance of a team. Well, the importance, I'll start with the importance of the team. The importance of the team is everything. Because in the end, you know, a costume designer has fantastic ideas and a costume supervisor is trying to make those things a reality. But the team that is physically making those costumes is the most important element in the end. If, if you don't have them, they are irreplaceable. And so for me, the importance of it is having people that you know and whose skill sets you know and who want to be challenged and tested with their skill sets, you know, push them on to do different things. And I've been lucky enough to work with the same people for on and off, you know, mm. not, not on every job. That's how our industry is. But I, I tend to work with the same heads of department. So, you know, we'll have a costume prop department, which could be anything from jewellery to belts to, you know, pieces of armour to um, anything, really, anything that's not a piece of soft cloth costume. 
the textile department is massively important, um, particularly in superhero movies. Well, in, in every movie, of course. But again, these things are still made of fabric and they're still printed and they're still dyed. And then everything that you make as a costume has to be aged and made to look real later on. Um, we have leather workers, we have metal workers, blacksmiths, shoemakers, milliners, you know, every, every single skill you could imagine. And, and to me, that is the joy of, of the job, really, is to, to get all those really brilliant, talented people and see what you can get out of the collective that's perhaps something new or different or hasn't been done before. Yeah. You know, but really they're using their skills that they've either learned at university, uh, college, or they've learned uh, in apprenticeships or just through working in life. And they're doing what they would do on any movie. So, for instance, it's a massively important part of superhero movies is the fabrics that we use. And to make them look different and to make them look unusual, and that can be that can be a fantasy movie as well. You know, you have to you have to look like you're creating your own fabrics, mm. which essentially is not always possible. We have had to do that in the past, but it's not always possible. And so there are printing techniques that you use to add texture or dimension or color um, to fabrics to make them look unusual and not like something you bought. So, yeah, the team is is everything. And so getting the team together is, you know, part of the pressure of working all the time is that you need to keep working so that you can keep the team employed because you don't want to go off and work with other people um, in a purely selfish way because it takes years to find the people that you really think are the best at what they do and also that are your friends and that you like. And for me, the real joy of the film is, of of the process, is is all working together to, to make something you know, better than our than our individual talents. It's something that creates from yeah. the whole. And um, yeah, as I say, you you have really fantastic heads of department. And then it, my philosophy is that you let those heads of department employ their own team yeah. members because they know who's the best at what they do. They know who is the most compatible personality wise with the rest of the team. They know who brings what skill sets that are not necessarily in the other people. And so they you know they're the best place to build a team and you have to have that trust with them that the people they will bring in will be the right people for the job and then as far as managing it goes it's all about the Ocado all the, <laughs> the chocolate is the chocolate on the Monday morning shop that you get <laughs> yeah. no as far as managing it goes again as I say if you've got the right people in place then they, they manage themselves you know they manage their own departments they're all as experienced if not more experienced than I am you know they know exactly what they're doing and you're just there to help to facilitate really to to help them with the timelines with making sure that they've got enough space and enough equipment and enough money to be able to make the things you're asking them to make yeah I mean wholly reliant on the team the team is everything and as I say at the beginning you know it could be up to 100 people on a in a costume department on one of these big specialty movies you know fantasy superhero movies and everybody only ever thinks about the film inside of making a movie you know everyone's seen a film set everyone's watched a movie about a movie and the only people you ever see are the ones standing around the camera in a costume department that might be as few as 15 of those 100 people that actually go on set every day you know or or have anything to do with the set The, the vast majority of people are working behind the scenes and come you know creating amazing stuff and that really to me is the is the joy of it the, the set is is the end product it's the sharp end and that and those people have to have, be fantastically skilled at what they do so that they can solve problems and answer questions and make things work on the hoof but the real joy of it is what goes on behind the scenes you know the making of all these things to get them on the set in the first yeah. place being one of those behind the scenes people i would definitely agree it yeah. now like you said, you obviously are dealing dealing with the budget, and also I guess your the the practical elements of that job. Costume designer, when they're there doing being creative, 
in in saying that though there may be occasions whereby say a costume designer wants something very specific or they want to design or it, it may cost you much money or, or whatever it is there's a little problem there how do you deal with that situation well essentially our job is to give the costume designer whatever they want mm. within reason is there is there, you know and so I think you would do everything you possibly could within your budget and within your remit, within your powers to give them whatever they want. And then when it gets to a point where that's no longer possible, you have to have a sensible conversation. And, you know, again, it comes back to you hope that they trust you enough that you they know you've done everything you possibly could to try and give them what they wanted and that they see that perhaps it isn't possible. I think in the the way the way that it works best is if you have a costume designer who wants everything because there's nothing worse than having a costume designer who wants to do less than the rest of us. You know, that's because <laughs> that's not satisfying because the satisfaction we get is to be tried and tested and to push mm. boundaries and to make new things. It, when I, I'm talking specifically about the kind of superhero specialty world, yeah. but also it is the position it is the role of the supervisor to be able to to have to say I'm sorry but that means these people are going to be working around the clock. They're going to have to work weekends you know but and weighing up when that is necessary because sometimes it is you know if someone's had a fantastic last minute idea or as you say something's been brought forward or something's been made and it isn't quite right based on what the costume designer wanted and we have to remake that thing then in those instances everybody understands as long as we understand it's been done for the right reason that you know we haven't quite achieved perfection or the level that we quite wanted to get to or what, and we all know that that's true people are happy to do it you know people want another go at something or but when you just feel like it's being done for the sake of either indecision or a lack of confidence in the thing that we're producing people have been forced to redo remake change you know it's that's when it gets difficult and it, and that's when it's the supervisor's job to possibly be unpopular with the costume designer and tell them they can't <laughs> have something and you know you never want to do that you you want it all to be done for the right reasons and for everybody to be driving towards sort of the best we can possibly do but yes it is part of the job and it is a, it is difficult sometimes and of course financially as you say you have to try and stick to a budget but if you feel that the the things are being changed and they're costing more money and it's the right reason for it, then, you know, you do everything you can to make it work. If you think someone's just being wasteful, then again, you have to put your hand up and say that you think it's wrong and make yourself deeply unpopular. <laughs> I, think the, I think the role of all supervisors at some point is to be unpopular. But with someone or another. Yeah, exactly, with someone, either upwards or downwards or there's always going to be someone who's not happy. But, but you've mentioned that, because it's going to sound like an odd question, but... Knowing that you may be unpopular in the situations where you you know, for example, you're going to go and deliver some bad news and then you leave the room and you know those people are going to have a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a moan about the situation that they're in, which is warranted. Most, I guess, most, I mean, if it's natural, we all have that, those moments. How is that? Well, it comes back to you hope that they trust you enough to know you've done everything you can to avoid the situation. And so if, it, <laughs> if, if you've arrived at that situation through your own bad management, then they then you deserve to be hated. <laughs> if, you've, <laughs> if you've arrived at that position through no fault of your own and you've done everything you possibly could to avoid it and you've fought their case and you've done it, then you hope that people know you've only come and asked them to do something that's going to make you unpopular because you had to. And again, that comes back to trust and honesty. If it is a cock up and it's your cock up and you go into the workroom and say listen I'm really sorry I've got this completely wrong and this is what we're going to have to do to fix it I think people will like you more than if you pretend 
that it wasn't your fault and that, you know, you don't accept responsibility. You know, it's all about responsibility, isn't it? Everybody takes on their own levels of responsibility. Yeah. If you act responsibly and you're doing, in the end, as a, as a manager, you you have to do the best you possibly can for your crew and you hope they know that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and if they hate you despite that, then there's nothing you can do. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a bit of an unfair no, question. No, absolutely, but... <laughs> absolutely part of it. You're, you're absolutely 100% right. And, you, and you've, I'm sure, been on, on the receiving end of it. And so uh, that is what you hope. And that's why you want to work with the same people all the time, because they know over 10 years, every time you've asked them to do something that makes you unpopular, you've done it for the right reasons. Or, you know, you've been big enough to admit you know, that you've made a mistake and it's and that they're doing you a favour. Yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. How did you get into this world? Well, I come from a film family. So my mum is a costume designer. And so I was always around the world of films growing up. Well, actually the theatre. When, when I was a kid, my mum worked in the theatre. And I always knew I wanted to work in the film industry. And I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. But I got a summer job as a floor runner very early on when I was 15 but I was very lucky to work on a Mike Lee film throughout the summer stopping traffic in the road wearing a fluorescent vest you know <laughs> and I, that kind of cemented it I you know I knew, I knew it's what I'd wanted to do but it, that was really it just being around the film set and all the different people uh, you know I talk a lot about the craft people within our department but the craft people within a film unit across the board in every department is so it's staggering really mm. I'm not sure there's any other industry in that you get to see that wild variety of different kinds of people from different backgrounds with different skill sets, you know. So yeah. I was hooked from, from very early on. And then costume-wise, I think the following summer when I was 16, I got a job at Angels, which is the costume hire house, which used to be at that time was in Shaftesbury Avenue in Soho. So for, for me, that was fantastic kind of introduction to Soho and being around that world. And uh, it's an, an amazing place to work with every kind of period of costumes and every kind of person you could ever imagine. And I got to meet lots of people there and got to meet lots of costume supervisors, costume designers, you know, made friendships with people and relationships with people. I worked there for it. And then I went back and worked at Angels again when I left school, when I was 16, and worked there for a few years, two or three years, and learned the sort of basics of costuming. Um, mostly I was cleaning shoes and ironing shirts and, you know, but you did also get to get to put together a few costumes, lots of evening dress, lots of morning coats, lots of wow. top hats being, you know, brushed down. But it was good. It was good, good basic training. Um, and as I say, got to meet lots of people. And then eventually was offered work outside of Angels and decided to go and work on film sets. First as a sort of daily, taking days off here and there or working weekends or sometimes even nights. Don't tell them. <laughs> coming in, coming in <laughs> and being useless the next day at work. Yeah, I just went from there, really. I, I worked as a set costumer for about 10 years, which I absolutely loved. And I loved a bit like your podcast. I love talking to all the different people in the different departments, camera and sound right through hair and makeup right. and it was brilliant it, it, I just I've always just loved it um I thought at one point that I wanted to work in the art department because at, having the costume designer as a mum it seemed a bit too much of an easy option to fall into costume I was too lazy really to go through with it and uh, <laughs> when, I, did, I did at one point go back to to college I went to an art I went to art school but about halfway through I ran out of money and someone offered me a job so I went back and worked on a film <laughs> And that's it, really. Yeah, as I say, I worked as a set costumer for about 10 years, learned loads, worked with brilliant, brilliant people, brilliant, brilliant costume designers on really amazing movies. I was so lucky with the films I worked on as a standby and with the costume designers I worked with and the supervisors. Uh, kind of special mention for John Scott, who's no longer a costume supervisor, now is a national treasure TV presenter. But um, I was really lucky to work with, with him 
and he taught me everything really about how to run a department and how things should be done and how to be a nice well he's a not I don't know if he told me how to be nice but he was so nice yeah and that was it really and then started supervising very quite young really on small films again my first film as a supervisor was a Mike Lee film for a designer called Jacqueline Durham who uh, hadn't done a huge amount at that point but is now you know multi Oscar winning fabulous costume designer and gone from there that's really interesting. I always find people's stories really interesting because they're always so different. I think well, I think always... it's one of the most interesting things. Again, it comes back to you know the people come from all you know. Some people are traditionally trained, and when I say traditionally, I mean literally like they went off to become a milliner or a screen printer. Uh, and some people just completely fall into it. From you know, you people who went to university to study maths, or mm. you know, so you meet all these incredible people. And as you say, the backstories is always fun, you know. It is quite a family orientated industry, as I'm sure you know, lots of people, you know, it's very old fashioned in that sense that lots of people come into it through their family connection. That's a misconception, I think, that it's like sort of old closed shop, you know, sort of old boys network that I obviously completely got in through nepotism. But I don't think that's the case for, um, for most people. People who find uses for their skills that they never knew would, you know what I mean? Leather workers that used to make saddles for horses and suddenly are making Trojan armour. As I say, like engineers that are, you know, thought they would be designing cars who are now making bat suits. You know, all those, all these things, and you find all these people that just fall in love with the with the costume side of it. Weirdly, with anything in life, I think having variances is and diversity in the people you have their strength in that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to say, I think within our department, we're failing somewhat in the diversity area because it's not a job that is widely known. I mean, I, I, I mean, the whole industry, I don't think, is particularly widely known in this country. Yeah. I don't think people know, for instance, that all the big movies are made here, that all the Star Wars films were made in the UK, going all the way back to Indiana Jones and mm. you know the Superman films, the Harry Potter movies. They don't know that those films are made here. They know James Bond's made here, maybe. But the rest of it, they don't know. And so I think the wider population don't necessarily know that the film industry is an option. Definitely goes into the sort of more diverse communities. If you, Unless you know, it's a very small industry, really. Unless you know somebody working on a movie set, you don't necessarily know that that's even a thing that happens in this country. And then within the costume department, again, there's another level of kind of, you don't know, unless you can sew, they think, well, what would I do? You know, you don't realise that you could come at it from an engineering point of view. You, you could come at it from a mould-making point of view, from a leather worker or a, you know, it's it's not that, that variety of jobs is not necessarily known. And so therefore we're not not attracting a wider, and that could be, it's not just like ethnic diversity, it can be economic diversity where people from different backgrounds who don't, you know, they don't realise that actually the entry level job on a film set is sort of above the average wage. It's not seen as something that would be a viable option for a, 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 you know, a school leaver, Um, but also, you know, geographical diversity you know how many people from the north for instance or from i have an option to you know unless you uproot come to work in essentially london which is where you know they bristol has a great tradition of making films and now in wales there's a there's a quite a big uh, industry there and obviously northern ireland but you know if you're from middlesbrough you know you, you have to up sticks and uproot and go and work somewhere completely else in the country just to get a job. So it's not really diverse. It's not really, there's not an opportunity there for those people. And it's hard to encourage. We talk about it a lot on every job. We're very conscious of the fact that we want to encourage people from outside the industry to come in, all different diverse backgrounds. But it's really hard to get the message out there because most of the people that you're talking to already made that choice and they've gone to university and they already know about it. You know, you need to get it into schools and into... Definitely, I think 
schools I think Ravine was saying something similar actually on and the, that she's running a program but going to speak to school age children is really really important because that message needs to be um reiterated 100 um, percent. it takes all sorts that's the, the reality isn't it and we know that from the people we work with all sorts of backgrounds all sorts of influences all sorts of skill sets uh, you, i think that's the thing is that people just don't know what a varied industry it is and giving like and as a supervisor i guess also giving opportunities to people if they i mean that's a whole wider conversation isn't it as to yeah. how you how you encourage diversity and who how you make those decisions and how you make those choices based on well I think it's yeah it's a wider conversation that in in every industry in every walk of life at the moment it's it's a conscious effort I think there's a lot of people making a conscious effort to do it but I don't think much is happening which shows you there's a problem yeah like you like just going back to what you said I think there's um creating the opportunity to widen the pool of people coming into the world as well yeah only help in 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 every single way you know in creativity in uh, mentality you know, for the wider world, you know, we, we need people need to be exposed to all the different cultures, religions, backgrounds, you know, for us to be prosper as a as a country going forward. You know that because if we fall into our own bubbles constantly, that's all you um, know. Yeah, that's all you know. Yeah. And that yeah. seems to be where all most of the problems we encounter are coming from. So, yeah, well, and creativity as well. You know, hmm. you need different influences to have genuine creativity. You need people with different voices different backgrounds different influences to and to bring something new to the the party as it were you know to bring something fresh to it because we've been seeing the same kind of voices for you know forever and whether that be directors camera you know dops uh costume designers whatever you know all these different backgrounds and 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 the making of different kinds of films yeah exactly i guess um to be representative of how we are as the nation that we live in um, and the experience that yeah the world we live in yeah exactly you like you said with the the field in which you work um and the sort of movies that you end up working on you i'm imagining get exposed to different kinds of technology that um you kind of alluded to earlier either you're producing that kind of technology whether it be fabrics that were um, not around prior to that or you're doing something with the people that are in your team that make that fabric like that and that technological aspect um obviously there's green screen and visual extensions and all that kind of other stuff that's kind of either been around for a while or is growing how do you see the kind of big budget um, superhero movies where there's a lot of stuff like you said that's made in-house lots of creativity going on versus then some people may say there's a, a kind of a newer opening for maybe a more scaled back version of that and then introducing more technology into that world which may then I don't think it will but some people may say it negates the costume department as it were not in the way that we see it now the way we function in it now how do you see that was a very long-winded question well i'm gonna can i answer it in two ways can i yeah answer however you feel (laughs) at the beginning of your question you were asking about the sort of different technologies and different techniques and that is a really that's i think that's really interesting so for instance on something like guardians of the galaxy Mm. alex Byrne, who was the costume designer was completely preoccupied with the idea that nothing should look like it came from earth unless it did so how do you do up a jacket without a zip how do you sew something together without it looking like it went through a sewing machine 
and all of those things. And so there's that side of technology, which is really interesting and innovative. And so that's more about looking at what's out there. And sometimes, so you can, you know, in the end, we found a zip manufacturer that made zips that didn't look like anything like normal earthbound zips, you know, from a fashion perspective or a handbag world, I think they might have been. And then we looked into like sonically welding fabrics together, like they do in sportswear and things like that. And now... Sorry, what is sonically welding? Well, so you can, basically you're gluing fabric together instead of using thread ah, okay and so you see it in a lot of like nike sportswear you'll see the seams are taped and, and stuck together and there's no actual there's no actual thread on show as it were ah. so and those tiny little details are what make a costume something different and believable and also what's the challenge for us and what's fun for us is because you know everybody's sewn a t-shirt together on every movie ever made or in every factory anywhere around the world but how do you make a t-shirt that made that look like it came from space yeah you know i'm not saying we <clears throat> we achieved that but that was you know that's part of the conversation mm. of and how do you how does this man do up his jacket without using a zip that looked like it came from ykk so then you're looking into the world of way beyond what is clothing manufacturing and looking into different technologies for different fasteners and poppers and zippers and velcros and you know even crazy velcro that doesn't look like velcro things like that and that's so that's one side of the technology and the kind of innovative side of things that's really interesting when you're doing superhero movies for instance like you know superman can't have a zip up the back of his suit that came from krypton <laughs> you know so how do you make the opening for that suit and blah 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 that's one so that's one side of it and that's really interesting and that sort of leads on i suppose to the technology involved in you know it wasn't very long ago that we would be sculpting a helmet for a superhero or a stormtrooper or whatever out of clay mm. then it was a very old traditional technique of sculpting that was done and then we'd have to take that away and put it into a mold and create a thing from that and blah. nowadays that's all done digitally the the technology's moved on not that long you know in very recent times mm that we are now instead of having sculptors who were such a rarity to find the, the fantastic costume sculptors there were maybe one or two or three that were all completely in demand the whole time we've now got teams of people that are just as skilled and just as artistic but doing it in a computer mm. and that brings with it a whole you know massive new raft of different techniques we can use employ to make the products to make the things so that's one way that i see technology going and then in answer to your question about will they basically, I think what you're saying is, will they just end up replacing these costumes with CG? Oh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it will happen, but yeah, I'm ask the question. I know, I mean, they tried it in the past. There was a film called The Green Lantern where... Oh yeah, the really um, bad Ryan Reynolds film. Exactly, and uh, people still talk about that now, you know, they still talk about that now and they say, let's please try and avoid doing that. But there are costumes already in lots and lots of films that are completely CG that you wouldn't necessarily know are because the technology's moved on so far. And it's another tool, really, because the idea that those costumes not being made takes something away from them is it takes something away from us because we don't have mm. the fun of making them. But for a costume designer, it can be quite a freeing thing because you can design something that can't be made yeah. or design something that can't be worn. And they're still designing that costume. It just happens to be that it was built in a computer by a person at a render farm somewhere, you know, but it's still designed by them. Yeah. And when you look at the backgrounds, set extensions or, or spacescapes or planets in movies, again, like Guardians of the Galaxy, they're still designed by the production designer. 
He just doesn't have to physically make them. He's designing them. And if you if you work in the right environment where you still can remain in control of them, it can actually be a really, you know, who gets to design a planet, what a planet looks like, you know? And so from a costume point of view, it takes away some of the fun from us and takes some away the creativity and the artistry and the craft side of it because we're not physically making them. But it's, um, for a costume designer, it's a whole new world of things they can design. So, it's, you know, there's a double, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. In answer to your question, I don't think it's going to happen for a while because it's still a lot more expensive to make a CG character than it is to do a real costume. Is it? Yeah, so I can speaking specifically about one costume that we did for the Age of Ultron, Avengers Age of Ultron. We had a character called the Vision, who's remained in the world of in the Marvel world. And at the beginning of the process, there was a, as always, there was a discussion: will he be a CG character? It was always going to be played by an actor, but would his body be CG? Would it be prosthetics? Because there was an idea that maybe he would be a completely, you know, because he's a sort of partly organic, partly digital character. And so would it be better that he was wearing a body, a whole body prosthetic? Would it be better that he was wearing, that his body was made up of, you know, digitally? So that he could behave in a different way to what an actual person could, or would it be a combination of the, you know, did and did he even have a costume? And in the end, it went down the route that he had a costume, but it had been left quite late in the day, and so it was going to be a very expensive costume. And we had a meeting, and you know, essentially the visual effects producer gave us a figure and said, as long as it doesn't cost more than this, you know, we oh. it's worth doing. And so that's the answer to the question: is you know, a, a fully rendered CG character, someone with more knowledge would have to tell you but can be something like a hundred thousand dollars a frame and so you can imagine how many costumes you can make for a hundred thousand dollars you know it's one no (laughs) no it's um yeah so it's you know we're not there yet we are heading towards it's all becoming cheaper it's all becoming less time consuming so there will be things in the future but when you think about I mean, I don't want to say, but there are characters out there that you think are wearing a costume, but they're not. Oh, bursting a few bubbles there, aren't you? I think somewhere. Um, no, but it is interesting, the world of technology. And I kind of, I have asked different departments this question, and it's always really interesting to hear the answers. Because some people are like, most people off more often than not, no one's ever very negative about it. They'd like you, like you said, they say you use it as a tool, you embrace it. Um, because that is the way the world is going right like um, but actually the interesting of the thing you touched upon there about um, Guardians of the Galaxy and the sort of yeah it's true like if you're in space the aliens or whatever they are they're not going to have zips and buttons the same way you do because that's very earthy that's interesting and the velcro no so, so when doing something like that working with someone like Alex Byrne is brilliant because you know she comes from a background of absolutely costume background of you know elizabethan you know everything you can imagine Mm. she's a fantastic costume designer but she also embraces uh this you know if you're going to do something let's do it properly let's think about it seriously let's go take it all to its logical conclusions and also you know we all want to challenge let's do something Mm. that we haven't done before um i'm working with her at the moment and we're trying to make a costume that no one's ever made before we don't know whether we can really do it we you know talk about stress that's where the stress comes into it (laughs) Is it actually, we actually don't know whether it can physically be done, but we're going through a process of R&D to try and come up with something that's never been done before. You know, there might be a reason why no one's done it before. <laughs> <laughs> You'll soon find out. But I guess also that those kind of elements of creativity and um, R&D, as you say, you take that and you, it may not work on, say, this job, but then you take that experience forward into another job and right. that informs how you design something else, exactly. right? There's two parts to that. There's everything you do now is we'll move on the technology will move on Mm. the uh ability to do it will move on people's um skill of using the particular material or the particular 
technology will move on. And so, like, for instance, the 3D modeling, you know, a few years ago, costume designers would not work with 3D modelers because they weren't costume people and they didn't understand the sensibilities of a costume necessarily. And But in the interim, the demand for them has created a whole raft of people. There's mm-hmm. a couple of people in, in particular who are so versed with costume now that it's like working with a cutter. So yeah. the costume designers love it because it's given them a new way of working with someone who's sympathetic to the way they work rather than someone who was used to making aeroplanes or spaceships you know what I mean? you know because it's a different thing it's not the same exactly so there's there's that side of it but then there's also the side where you're going backwards in time so for instance the printing elements that we do to make you know you can imagine if you look at superman's costume there's a really skillfully intricately designed print on that costume that makes it look like something you've never seen before it's not yeah. made out of cotton jersey it's not made out of uh you know ripstop it's not made out it's something that we've never seen it's alien and yeah. it comes from from the textile department who are using traditional skills of screen printing and reinventing the way that those things are done and turning it into something new so and and it's the same for all of it you know so uh, iron man's costume for instance might be made by someone who trained as a blacksmith who was making traditional armor for reenactors or something you know it's like and so you can there's one way of trying to take technology that exists now and push it forwards and then there's also taking technology that that has existed for ages but doing it in different ways the screen printing side of it is you won't see a costume now really you won't see a specialty superhero costume that hasn't had some element of printing done on it and those printing techniques are traditional old-fashioned printing techniques but using new materials in new ways essentially it's all screen printing so that's something that's been around for hundreds of years that's now being used to do something that looks like it's never been done before that's the joy of it um it's it's taking people's skill sets that they've had and they may you know you, you could be with someone who's been doing it for 30 years but has never done it like this and so, and, and, and it's fun for them as well. You know, it, it, we all want a new challenge and a new way of doing things. So it's, I, I keep coming back to it, but the people we work with are all absolutely are crafts people and they all have fantastically skillful crafts. And, but there's, you know, there's nothing worse than just making that same earring for 30 years, the same way in the same technique with the same plating and the same, uh, you know, whereas yeah. you can use all those skills you've got. And someone says, but now I want you to make, you know an alien headdress it's fun yes and that very nicely brings me on to my final question which is what are your three favorite to watch recommendations oh, so, so <laughs> yeah. my recommendation my first recommendation is a documentary called film worker which i don't oh. know if anyone recommended it before on the podcast they but haven't, uh, I don't think, no. it's directed by tony ziera and it's a documentary about a man called Leon Vitali, who was Stanley Kubrick's assistant. Oh. And it's such an interesting story about uh, he was a relatively successful actor who um, was cast in Stanley's film, Barry Lyndon. Okay. And he had a main role in Barry Lyndon. And it was one of the most desirable roles. Everybody in the world wanted it. It was for a young actor. And he loved the process of working with Stanley Kubrick so much that he essentially gave up his entire career and life as an actor and went and became Stanley's personal assistant. What? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And what it is, is it's about passion. And it comes back to what, a lot of what we've talked about, which is that it, it, it reminds you when you watch it that movie making is an art form. And that if you've got a genuine artist like Stanley Kubrick, then people will almost do anything for them. And there are, I won't spoil it for you, but it's a bit of an extreme version, you know, of giving up your entire life oh, and wow. basically giving your life over to someone. It's a pretty remarkable story. And it really is a, 
everyone should watch it because it makes you realize the passion that you should have for our jobs not necessarily to the level he had it necessarily <laughs> but the rest of your life suffers i just recommend it highly Fair Every, enough. anyone who's in the film industry should watch it okay if anyone is interested in stanley kubrick should watch it but also anyone who's just interested in you know our industry as a sort of passion project is really worth it ah should check that out um, my second recommendation would be Chernobyl, the TV show that was on last year. You're not alone. Um, a few other people have said that. I just thought it was such a fantastic piece of filmmaking from every aspect, design, storytelling, you know, told of what is a fairly clunky story in such a fantastic way that made it. Um, and I watched it with my, at the time, 14 oh. year old son who, you know, is not madly interested in history or, and he loved it as well. And it was so invested in it that I thought it was really cleverly told story. The last last couple of years, that's one of the best things I've seen, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's high praise. And then my last recommendation is a book. It's called Blade Runners, Deer Hunters and Blowing the Bloody Doors Off. It's an autobiography by a British film producer called Michael Dealey. And he produced films like uh, The Italian Job, Blade Runner, The Deer Hunter. Oh, okay, explain the title. Um, and yeah, it was an independent um, filmmaker. And it's just an interest, again, anyone who's interested in films and not necessarily understands the side of, I don't want to make it sound dry by talking about finances and stuff, but it's a kind of, it's a very interesting insight into the world of a sort of independent producer oh. and, the, and how mad that world was at that period. I don't know whether it still is. I'm sure it probably still is. But um, he's got an interesting character and he was definitely surrounded by some very interesting characters. Wow. I, yeah, I always wonder about that um, era and interesting to say the least. So yeah, I think old Hollywood is fascinating. I think there's not enough stories told about that. Um, thank you, Dan, for your recommendations. And thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan. Tune into the next episode where I'll be speaking to cinematographer Danny Cohen. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.